Good morning. My name is Edgar, and uh, I serve on the pastoral uh, staff here at ZF. Well, we are going to continue this morning with our sermon series from the book of Psalm. But let me start by asking a question, and I know you know the answer to this question. By a show of hand, how many of you here, parents, have heard once upon a time in your life this universally annoying question when you set off for a road trip with younger kids? And what's the question? Are we there? Are we there yet? And moments after you say to them, not yet, then comes another, are we there yet? And another, are we there yet? And at this point, you give an acoustically high-pitched tonal response, which is just a nice way of saying you yell, not yet. <laughs> and after a little while, your, your little one will just be quiet and rephrases the question in the next run. How much longer do we still have to go? Well, children usually ask these questions out of excitement about the joy that awaits them at their destination or as a result of boredom of being strapped to just one place. Like younger children's inquiry about the duration of their traveling time, David also inquired from God in Psalm 13. And David repeatedly asked God a similar question. He questioned God, how long, O oh Lord, how long? And after a while, he said, another how long? And another how long? Of course, David's motive of asking was entirely different from the way younger children ask their parents about the duration of their journey. This psalm, like many other psalms, such as Psalm 6, 10, 12, 38, and 42, are widely regarded as psalms of lament. They form bulk of all the psalms in the Psalter. And the psalmist used the device of lament to pray because it was a powerful tool that God's people used to express their gaudy emotions and as they navigate through pain and suffering. It was and still is a way of crying to God or petitioning Him to deliver us from trouble. For the most part, the psalmist's laments came from the dark places of the soul, sometimes from the pit of pain and agony, where only God is deemed as the deliverer. In other words, it is the kind of the ouch we express when something deeply hurts us, only that it is directed toward God. Have you ever been overcome with anguish and sorrow or overwhelmed by the feeling of loneliness and despair to the point of believing that no one on earth possibly understands the depths of your pain? In times like these, it helps to remember that God is there and that he would never let us walk alone. So come along with me as we explore David's lament to God in the midst of his deep state of discouragement and a feeling of abandonment by God. 
And just in case that is where you find yourself this morning, I have good news for you. That God understands and sees you in the center of your pain. And he is available and ready to listen to you as you cry out your heartache, your anger, and even your sadness. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is not lost on me this morning to acknowledge that you are a good, good God. We also acknowledge that as we go through this once upon a time world that you created, beautiful and perfect, but due to the fall, we experience struggles daily in pain and brokenness and grief and disappointments and discouragement to the point that sometimes we feel that you have neglected us. But, oh Lord, as we are about to listen to your word, we pray that you please grant us grace to not only learn how to make our petitions known to you, but also deeply put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for us the Psalm 13. It's on your, your sheets that you have, or you can turn into your Bible. It reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, would you forget me forever? How long would you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The main reason that occasioned David to pen down this psalm is unknown. However, you need no second guessing if you read First and Second Samuel to realize that historically David was a man familiar with twists and many twists and turns in his life. Therefore, while this, the antecedents of this writing of the psalm is unknown, its content is not just a mere poetic rendition of a hypothetical situation. Rather, David's words were indicative of someone who was going through a dark place in his life or reflecting on past ordeals, as many of us sitting here this morning could attest to. We notice this by his interrogative opening questions of how long. Typically, all lament psalms follow a certain structure, where they, whether they are individual laments, where someone is pouring their deep, sorrowful heart to God, or a communal lament where the worshiping community corporately approach God for deliverance from a shared predicament. For instance, Psalm 12 and Psalm 13 are perfect examples of a communal and individual lament, respectively. You will see the following elements in each lament psalm. The psalmist begins with an invocation, which is an, an acknowledgement and addressing God in their prayer. Then they move to complaint, 
followed by petition and ends with praise. The best way to remember this whenever you face a psalm, a lament psalm, or when you yourself engage in the process of lament, as Carol Hubbard just told us, if you find yourself in that place where you have to lament before the Lord, ask yourself these four journalistic questions. Whom am I praying to? And that is invocation. What am I praying about? That is the complaints that you have to make to God. And why am I praying? What do you really want to see God do? And how should I respond to this prayer? And I must say to you, is to have a disposition or an attitude of thanksgiving or praise. We will see each of these elements in our psalm this morning. However, we will focus on three movements here. First, David's plight. We'll see that in verse 1 to 2. And secondly, we'll look at David's petition, verse 3 and 4. And lastly, David's praise, verse 5 and 6. Let's look at the first point. David starts this psalm with a quick invocation to draw his readers' attention to whom he was directing his prayer. If you notice in your Bible, the word Lord is all in the uppercase letters. This signifies that David was directly addressing God by his revealed name, Yahweh or Jehovah. He wasn't speaking to no one. He wanted God's attention. Because he knew that he was the only one who gives hope in the midst of adversity. And that's the title of our message today. Trusting God in the midst of adversity. Or hoping in God in the midst of your suffering. Then David quickly pivots to a succession of interrogative questions. That were not seeking information. But rather a form of complaining and protesting unto the Lord. We hear his distress and the tone of his repetitive questions. And here you go. How long, O Lord? How long? And if you pay a close attention to that distress call, you would notice that those fourfold how long were actually directed to a three-dimension he asked four times, how long? But he was really addressing three things in his life. First, he directed his frustration at the Lord for seemingly abandoning him. Then he questioned how long would he wrestle with his thoughts and feelings of discouragement. And also he questioned about how long would his enemy triumph over him. But David's major complaint was not even about this, the two last ones I mentioned. But it was about God abandoning or hiding his face from him. And listen to his cry. How long would you forget me? How long would you hide your face from me? And to David, these were not just words of meditative musing or some kind of sanctimonious cliche. No. They were real heartfelt expression of how he felt at that moment. And by the way, God did not have problem with that. 
Similarly, God does not have a problem with us pouring our hearts out to him just as we feel in the midst of our suffering. The only problem though is when we get stuck only at complaining in the process of pouring our hearts out to him. As mentioned earlier, David does not begin and end with complaint. For instance, David started in discouragement and despair. But he finished in a place of trust, joy, and, and encouragement. And that is typically a typical pattern of the laments, as I just mentioned. But does that mean that God must always ease our suffering or burden before we praise Him? Does it always follow those steps that we are going to praise Him at the end just like that? The answer is no. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself demonstrated a perfect example of how we ought to bring our pains, our brokenness, our sorrows, and our heartfelt complaints before the Lord. Moments before he died on the cross, he quoted one of David's psalms, and the scriptures say about the ninth hour, as he hung upon the cross, he cried out in a loud voice in his native Aramaic tongue, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And the trans that translation is found in Psalm 22 verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The other part of that scripture that Jesus did not quote says, Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the word of my groaning. Trust you, me. I know that many of us here this morning have felt like that. At some point in our lives. Of course, we all know that Jesus did not end his cry there as one hopeless loser. Rather, he closed with Psalm 30, 31 verse 5 by saying, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. By this he modeled, friends, he modeled this complete trust in his heavenly father. Such that even in the face of death, he maintained hope and confidence in him. Just as he lived each day of his life by placing himself in the hands of his father. The one of whom Isaiah wrote in chapter 49, verse 15. Can the mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may, I will not forget you. I will not. So even when the dark clouds may seem to hide his face for a moment, I mean the dark clouds of sickness, the clouds of pain and suffering, the clouds of broken promises, the dreary clouds of disappointment, and the gloomy clouds of loss and loneliness, and the dark days of uncertainties, He would not abandon us. He would not. But if we are honest, you will agree with me that every follower of God at some point in their lives has felt neglected by God. Or at least have felt like they have waited 
A long time for God to do what needs to be done. A real long time. Perhaps that is where you are this morning. Or even if that is not your situation this morning, we may only need to look back a month or two ago, a year or two ago, and you would agree that you have been there. Yet still, if you have not had any reason to feel this way, you only need to keep on living. And you would have an opportunity of experiencing this feeling. I mean the kind of feeling that you have when you are suddenly thrown into a circumstance or stuck in a season of life where you feel helpless, exhausted, tired of hoping and expecting a breakthrough. Yet you see others who have been through the same circumstances and they have made it through. But you are still stuck in there. I mean the kind of feeling you have when everyone seems to be given testimony of what God has done in their lives. How their children are thriving. How their marriages are flourishing. How they have been vindicated. How they have landed their dream jobs. How their health is as fit as a fiddle. But you, your prayers do not seem to go beyond the ceiling. You question in your heart whether God is listening to you, whether he really cares about you or loves you. You even doubt your own faith. You blame it on something you could have done. Friends, it is not uncommon to faint under the weight of such feelings. And to even wish that if only God could tell you how long you would have to go through this, you would endure it. You just want an expiration date on your problem. Let it come with the date of expiration. I can go through it because I know it is coming to an end now. But there should be a balance in life when it comes to feelings. Some people ignore feelings and think that feelings should have nothing to do with our relationship with God. This is an extreme viewpoint. Because God has given us feelings as an expression of his image in us. We can feel anger. We can feel love, care, sorrow. Because God himself shares those feelings with us. On the other hand, some people live their lives ruled by feelings. They believe whatever reality their feelings present them. The problem with this is, though we are made in God's image and have feelings, our feelings have been affected by our fallenness. Our fallen nature. Therefore, we cannot entirely trust our feelings. In that sense, although... It was no more for David to feel those feelings and good to take them to God. He would have been mistaken to accept them as the real reality. Similarly, when you are overburdened with the issues of life and Jehovah seems to hide his face and people do not fully grasp the way you feel and perhaps even charge you with a failing faith. Do not lose your heart, my friends, in the Lord Jesus. Because we have a loving Father 
who knows you by your name. He knows your address. He feels your pain. And he listens to your cry. And he sees each tear that you shed at night. And he would never abandon you. Here is how William Cooper, a British poet in the 1600s, who wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, puts it. And I will quote a stanza at the end of each point in my sermon this morning. This man himself was a man familiar with deep depression and mental illness for most part of his life. And he wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind your trouble, God is still there. He hides a smiling face. He cares about you. Let's quickly look at the next point, David's petition. As mentioned earlier, the next element in lament is petition. So let us look at how David's plea, after that honest presentation of his plight unto the Lord. A story is told of a man, a poor man, who, re who often sat on the route that a king regularly took. Day after day, this man would cry and complain to the king all his problems, hoping to get the king's attention. But then one day, this man, but the king's chariot always just rode by. One day, this man realized and he sat there and he said, His Majesty, please help me. And suddenly, the king's entourage came to a stop and the king ordered for him to be brought to. Yeah, to, to, to bring him in and the king asked him how can I help you and the man went on to tell the king exactly what he needed friends to complain about a matter is one thing but to earnestly pray for a solution is another thing Amen. and many of us are likely prone to the former than the latter we can complain 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 it's good to lament but let lament go through the full cycle. But as for David, he did not stop at the passionate complaint to God about his plight. Rather, he moved his prayer to presenting his plea or petition for help. Just like a poor man asked the king. Verses 3 to 4 reads, Consider and answer me, O Lord God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. And lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There is a lot to unpack in these couple of lines. David cried unto the Lord with a clear sense of what he desired from the Lord. And as well as what he dreaded. He has a desire that he's presenting. He's also telling God what he dreaded most. First he said, consider and, and answer me. Or look on me and answer because he felt that God was not listening to his prayers. In verse 1, when he said, how long would you hide your face from me? It may seem as though David was asking for two things here, separate things. By saying, consider and answer. But he was basically asking for the same thing. He was just using 
that as an emphasis because in the Hebrew culture, repetition was an indication of just uh, enunciating a matter or of its relevance. So David was just presenting his desperation before God. And three things we can take away from that particular text is, one, in spite of David's feeling that God had abandoned him, yet he continued to cry out to him. Because God is honored when we persistently and desperately cry out to him in our prayers. Hence Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And the next thing here is that every, from every indication, David was desperate here. And sometimes God waits until our prayers are desperate before he intervenes. And I know you are asking me why. I do not know. I do not know the answer to that. My only guess is perhaps it reveals our total dependence on him alone. But dare I submit to you that sometimes the cause of the powerlessness of our prayer is betrayed by its lack of desperation or fervency. Hence, James reminds us in James 5 verse 16, the effective and the fervent prayer of the righteous person works. God makes it work in his own way. And the next thing we could, we could glean from that is that desperate prayer has power not because, in its, because of itself it persuades a reluctant God. Your desperation does not work toward persuading a God who is reluctant to act. Instead, it demonstrates that our hearts care passionately about the things that God cares for. Does not John entreat us in John 15 verse, uh, verse 7? It says, if you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask anything and it shall be done. It's Jesus' words. But you may ask again, why then are my prayers not answered yet? The only answer I can give to that is, in his time, he will answer in his way. In his time, he would answer in his way. Just keep making your requests made known to God with prayer, with petition, and thanksgiving, and do not let anxiety have its best part of your life. David also petitioned God, enlighten my eyes. And this was probably the most seminal part of this prayer, in my view, because... It spells out the fact that David recognized that though he felt those powerful feelings, he was not seeing the actual reality. His vision had been blurred by the weight of his circumstance, such that he began to see God in a bad light. Trust had been replaced by anxiety. Hope by despair and faith by fear. By the way, someone says the acronym F-E-A-R stands for false evidence appearing real. And that was David's plight. But what about you? What havoc has fear caused in your life and your relationship with God? 
What problem are we going through right now that seems to distort the vision that we have about God? We need the light of God to grant us wisdom and understanding, to cry out with all our heart, enlighten my eyes to see things from your perspective. From God's perspective, not the way you see it. Ask God. Paul re-echoed this sentiment in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians. And he says here, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for you that the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes and heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance for the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That's Paul's prayer. And David prayed the same here. And what were David's dread? David was dreading few things and he presented them. And this is where really it matters. When it comes to lament, hold back nothing. God is not intimidated by your whatever. He's not. Hold back nothing. Pour your heart out to God. Just as it is. And David was telling God his dreads. Lest he slept the slept of death. Lest his enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who troubled him rejoice over his fall. David candidly expressed those dreads. Because he knew that one of the worst part of losing to anyone is to have them. Boast over you after your defeat. He knew, so he's praying. And so David's awareness of God on the one hand and of his enemies on the other hand formed the hallmark of all his psalms that he wrote. Because these two realities of God here and his enemies were the positive and the negative charges that produced the driving force for the best part of his life. He's aware that he's under attack, but he's aware that he has God on his side. So even when negativity comes, he turns around his face and looks up to God. This two tension gave David his best part of his life. And you too, you and I can do the same. And here is how another psalmist, Asaph, petitioned God in light of his dread over the enemies questioning the power of God of Israel, the God of Israel. He prayed, help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for the sake of your name. Why should the nations ask, where is their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations your vengeance for the bloodshed of your servants. Psalm 79 verse 9 and 10. We can borrow a leaf from this prayer when we petition God about anything. That God will be glorified in whatever situation we face. And that we will be a testimony that draws others to him by the way we stand on the trials. How we go through trials. Would that bring people to the Lord? And lastly, we will settle down for what 
ever God does at the end of the day. We will say like Jesus, into your hands, Lord, I commit myself. Not as I will, but let your will be done. For he knows better than you and I know. And he's a good God. Listen to William Cooper again. Here he says, in another stanza of that hymn, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Quickly, lastly, let's look at David's praise. After David's expression of his plight and petition, we now see a sudden transition in his disposition from discouragement to trust in the Lord. Verse 5 opens with a conjunction, but... Although some, maybe your version has the word and. However, the word but especially, is especially important because it sets the mood for what followed. So David used the conjunction but to use as a sharp a contrast between his discontentment with God for seemingly abandoning him and his struggle with discouragement. And the dread of his enemies rejoicing over his downfall. And his unrelenting trust in the Lord, even in his lowest moments. But, and if you notice here, David used the past tense. I have trusted in your steadfast love. This implies that though David was temporarily discouraged and disillusioned, he did not completely abandon his old habit of trusting in the Lord. His situation may have clouded the face and mercies of God for a moment, but David took comfort in the Lord and his steadfast love, which never ceases. Therefore he said, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And it is important again to pay some attention to the grammatical function there. He says, he did not say, my heart has rejoiced in your salvation. Instead, he put salvation in the future, which probably referred to his anticipated deliverance. And so he says, shall rejoice. Shall rejoice. Meaning, even though David had not yet sinned, he had an assurance of the final victory which enabled him to trust in the divine mercies of the Lord even in his darkest hour. He shall rejoice. Friends, this calls for the kind of faith Louis Giglio refers to as the even though faith. And the even though faith is that which agrees with Job that even though he slay me, yet would I trust him. It agrees with David in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And it also agrees with the prophet Habakkuk. Even though the fig tree has no fruit and no grape grows on the vine, even though the olive crops fail, even though the sheep all die and no cattle in the stall, I will still be joyful and glad in my Lord. Even though. And what about you? Would you agree with these godly saints and saying, 
Even though I am under intense financial pressure, I will rest on the providence of the Lord. Even though healing doesn't come and life falls apart and dreams are all still unmet, I will declare the goodness of the Lord. Or even though all what I am going through right now does not make sense to me, I will be joyful in the Lord my God. Once David called to mind the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, but they are new every morning. He had a reason to hope in God again. And there is no heart that sings the praise of the Lord lustily than one in which hope arises. Friends, I can go on and on and tell you about Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations that carries the theme that we are talking about today. And Jeremiah, for the first half of the book, he is complaining to God and complaining and complaining. And listen to some of his complaints. He says, you drove an arrow into my kidney. I think I know a, th a thing or two about that. <laughs> you made me into a laughing stock. And you made me an object of turns for the people. You have filled me with bitterness and made my teeth grind on gravel. My soul is bereft of peace and has forgotten what happiness is. And my endurance has perished. So has my hope for the Lord. And my soul is continually bowed down within me. Perhaps that's you. That's you this morning. That's exactly how you feel. And God sees you and he knows about it. But listen to what Jeremiah did. Right in the middle of his moaning and groaning, his eyes got enlightened like David. And he altered this, a statement that, in my opinion, perhaps is the most important verse in the entire Bible. For every Christian, especially in the face of adversity and suffering. And listen to this. He said, in chapter 3, verse 21. But this I call to mind, or remember, and therefore... I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Like David, Jeremiah, Job, Habakkuk, and the list goes on. It is possible, child of God, to put our trust in the Lord and bust into joyous praise and celebration, even in the midst of our pain, our loneliness, our rejection, our loss, it is possible. If only we can stop and call to mind the faithfulness of God. And here is how I put it in closing. If we dwell enough on the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord, it will bring about gratitude in our hearts. And gratitude will lead to hope. And hope will lead to joy. In other words, show me a thoughtful heart. The things on the goodness of the Lord. And I will show you a grateful heart. Show me a grateful heart. And I will show you a hopeful heart. Yes, see, show me a hopeful heart. And I will show you a joyful heart. And lastly, show me a joyful heart. And I will introduce you to a praiseful heart. One who trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. Even in the midst of adversity, they will still praise God. Cooper says here, his purpose is to ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bird may have a bitter taste. 
but sweet. But sweet will be the flower. Sweet. God moves in a mysterious ways. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We may have heavy hearts this morning, but we want to just stop and say thank you. You know what you are doing. We pour our hearts before you. Help us, Lord, to learn how to lament as well as trust in your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.